If you have a copy of uh, the Bible, you can turn to John chapter 3. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be from John 3, verses 1 through 7, and then chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 9 through 19. That's also printed in your bulletin, so if you would, please follow along with me as I read God's Word to us. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Now in chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He said to her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman replied, I can see that you're a prophet. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you this morning thanking you that Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, but that he is our great prophet, priest, and king. We pray that this morning your holy word would search our hearts and our minds by the power of your spirit, that you will convict us of things that we need to be convicted of, but Lord, that you too would comfort us where we need to be comforted. Thank you for your grace you've shown to us. Please bless the preaching of this word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. You know, one of the questions that I'm often asked as a church planner is, why do you want to start a new church, and why in Cartersville? Well, one of the best ways for me to answer that question, and especially since I'm here at Christ Community this morning, is that we want to start a church for the same reason that this church was started some 12 years ago. We want to see changed hearts that lead to changed lives, that lead to a changed community in Cartersville, just like we want to see that happen here in Kennesaw. But now, as many of you who have been around a while know, that doesn't just happen. Simply wanting that and trying to start a new church doesn't produce that kind of change on its own. 
No, there must be a supernatural power involved to bring that kind of change. And that power is, of course, God's own Spirit working through what we call the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Well, in a nutshell, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, who He is, and what He's done, and what He continues to do in this world. And this morning, we're going to be looking specifically at how the gospel works in the lives of what seems to be two very different kinds of people to bring about this change that we hope to see here in Kennesaw and in Cartersville and indeed throughout the whole world. You see, when God begins to change someone's heart that leads to a changed life that in turn leads to a changed community, He begins by changing our basic understanding of some spiritual things through the power of the gospel. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, the apostle Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now it's interesting that the apostle Paul mentions these two kinds of people because it just so happens that these are the two kinds of people that we are going to be looking at in our text today. It's the Jews and the Gentiles. It's religious and irreligious people. It's insiders and outsiders. These are the two kinds of people that we're going to be looking at this morning. And no matter who you are, if you receive the gospel, then through it, Jesus Christ will begin to change you. And he begins by changing First, our basic understanding of at least three things. You see, these two passages show us that through the gospel, Jesus Christ changes the way we think about God. He changes the way we think about sin. And He also changes the way we think about salvation. So those are our three points this morning. Let's begin by looking at how through the gospel, Jesus changes the way we think about God. In John chapter 3, we're introduced to this man named Nicodemus, who we're told is a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. And the Pharisees, of course, were one of the great religious and political parties among the Jews in Jesus' day. You see, they were the experts on the law and its interpretation, and they made up part of the ruling class that was known as the Sanhedrin. So Nicodemus then was someone who was very well educated and well known, He was someone who was a civic leader and someone who was very successful. He made a lot of money and he was very prosperous. And really, he was the most admirable sort of person possible. He was the ultimate insider, you could say, in his society. Because even though he was a Pharisee, you know, today that that phrase only has a negative connotation. Nicodemus actually was not a bad Pharisee. Because you see, he was willing to go to Jesus, a man who was merely seen as a carpenter and somebody who had no formal theological training, and yet he calls him a rabbi. He calls him his teacher. So this shows us that Nicodemus was not only a successful and moral man, but he was also open-minded. Now what more could you want in a person? What more could we ask from somebody than what Nicodemus gives us here in this text? Well, though Nicodemus looks all put together on the outside, 
Something in his life had to be missing, particularly on the inside, in his heart. Because when he comes to Jesus asking him questions about God, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this is a metaphor that Jesus is using to talk about real spiritual life with God. But you see, this is a a response. It's the least and the last response we would ever expect and that Nicodemus expected Jesus to give a man like him. Now why is that? Well, it's because the traditional understanding of God is that God is only supposed to accept and bless people who do good things and who work hard and who are successful and who make something out of their lives. You see, that's exactly what Nicodemus and the other Pharisees thought. That's how they lived. That was their whole worldview. That was the center of their whole worldview. And you see, that's what many people and, who, and almost every religious person today thinks as well. That God helps those who help themselves. Now, I'm sure that all of us have heard that phrase before. We've all heard that kind of uh, lingo and that kind of thought. But I want to ask you this morning, is that true? Is it true? Well, let's take a look at Jesus' interaction with another person who on the surface could not appear to be any more different than Nicodemus. You see, in chapter 4, we're told that Jesus left Judea for Galilee, and on the way, he had to pass through a place called Samaria. Well, being the long, difficult, hot journey that it was, verse 6 tells us that Jesus became weary, and so he stops to rest beside a well around the sixth hour, which was about noon. And verse 7 says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And the woman replies, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now at first, this whole interaction seems hardly surprising to us. I mean, here's Jesus talking to this woman, telling her that he's thirsty and asking her for a drink. But this should be surprising to us because if you understand the context, if you understand what's going on behind the scenes, what's happened in history before this, you know that this indeed is very surprising. Because you see, John inserts this little comment in verse 9 about Jews having no dealings with Samaritans. You see, the Jews and the Samaritans were bitter enemies. Centuries before this time, centuries before this event, most of the Jews had been taken off into exile by their captors, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But you see, they didn't take everybody. Some of the Jews were left behind. And those that were left behind, what happened was that they intermarried with the Canaanites who lived around them, forming a whole new race called the Samaritans. And you see, what made them so vile in the Jews' eyes was that the Samaritans took part of their Jewish heritage and part of their Jewish religion And they took part of the Canaanite heritage and part of the Canaanite religion and they blended the two together so that there was essentially this new blended religion. So the Jews considered the Samaritans to be racial inferior heretics at best. And that is the first reason why this woman is so surprised that Jesus is speaking to her. But you see, secondly, she's also surprised because he is a man who is talking to her, a foreign woman. 
You see, that was a cultural taboo in those days. You would have never caught somebody like Nicodemus doing something like that, and especially not with a woman like this. And what kind of woman was this? Well, John says that she came to draw water at noon in the middle of the day. And commentators point out that this is not when women went to draw water from the well in this society. Now, you see, they all went in the morning, early in the day before it got really hot, so that they'd have water for their households the rest of the day. So why is this woman going to the well here in the middle of the day? Well, it's because she's a moral outcast. And we know this because Jesus tells us that this is a woman who has had five husbands and that the man that she's living with now is not even her husband. And you see, that would have made her an outcast in any society, including her own. But what's so incredible about this interaction that we see here is that here we see Jesus Christ, the most moral man who has ever lived, reaching out to someone who is the wrong kind of person in every way. And you see, this goes against every idea that the human race and all the world's religions have ever had about God. How? Well, it's because the philosophies of men and all the religions of the world, save but Christianity, they are all really about one thing. And what are they about? Well, they're about setting up barriers. They're about setting up barriers. Why? Well, it's because they say the good people are over here and the bad people are over here. They say that the people who are good, the people who keep the law, all the good people, those who are virtuous are on one side and everybody who's not that and who doesn't do those things are on the other side and they have to be kept apart. And you see, though it depends on who you ask regarding who is good and who is bad, whether it's the haves or the have-nots, the red states or the blue states, the religious or the irreligious, what remains the same among them all is that the dividing lines are always drawn in the same place. They're always drawn between the good and the bad. For example, if you want to see, uh, if you want to see a really good example of this, if you go today to where Jesus lived and where he ministered, if you go to Palestine today, one thing you are sure to see while you were there is a whole lot of dividing lines and barriers. And why are they there? Why are there so many barriers there between these two different people? Well, they're there to separate two specific people groups, two specific religions that are represented in this region who cannot get along and who despise each other. And you know who I'm talking about. It's the Jews and the Palestinians, or in other words... It's the Jews and the Gentiles. You see, the more things change, the more they really stay the same. You see, what I find really fascinating is that both of these two people groups, though they seem very, very different on the outside, there's one thing that they have in common. And do you know what that is? Both of them claim that God is on their side. Both of them think that they are justified in killing people from the other side because God's with us. That's what they say. And you can ask either one of those people groups and they'll say the same thing. Now, I think that's a fascinating thing to consider. And particularly so in light of this idea that we have today in our culture that says, 
that, you know, all religions are really just a little bit different. But you see, basically, at their core, they're all the same. They're all the same. They all give us part of the truth. And you see, we might call this the slices of the pie approach to religion. That says that every religion, whether it's Buddhism or Christianity or Hinduism or Islam, they're all really just little pieces of the pie. They're all just slices of a bigger whole. But I think if you understand what Christianity truly is and you understand what Jesus Christ said it means to follow him, what you find is that Christianity will not fit into this pie at all. And you see, it's at this point we see that there is a gulf. There is a chasm between Christianity and all the other religions in the world. Now imagine for a moment that if you went over to the Palestinians today or you went over to the Jews and you told them that they need to take all their barriers and take away all their dividing lines because basically they're really the same. You know, how do you think that would go over if you tried that? That wouldn't go over well at all. They would look at you like you were crazy. But you see, through the gospel, Jesus Christ has come to change the way we think about God by giving us a God who is not about creating barriers, but a God who is willing to reach across them. He's a God who's willing to reach across the barriers that mankind set up to get his hands dirty with people who aren't like him at all. You see, when Jesus comes on the scene, Nicodemus is dumbfounded because Jesus shatters his understanding of God. Nicodemus thinks that he's done everything right in his life, so there must be something that separates him from those who haven't. But you see, Jesus Christ doesn't come congratulating Nicodemus on a life well lived on God's side of the fence. You know, if Buddha would have met Nicodemus, he might have been impressed with his life. He might have said, you know, Nicodemus, you're going to have really good karma. And one of these days, I'm sure you're going to reach Nirvana because of the way you've lived your life. But Jesus isn't impressed with the life that Nicodemus has lived. And then I want you to also think about this for a moment. Think about what it might have been like if it were Muhammad that had gone and had met the woman at the well instead of Jesus Christ. How do you think that interaction would have gone over? Well, I don't think Muhammad would have given her the gentle rebuke that Jesus did. Do you? No, not at all. Why? It's because Jesus Christ isn't like all the other religious teachers who come to point us to the way to God. That is what we must do to get to Him. No, Jesus Christ comes to do for us what we could never do on our own. Notice how Jesus deals with this woman here at the well. He doesn't condemn her, but neither does he approve of her way of life. And you see, despite the fact that there were barriers of race and culture and gender and religion and morality between them, and that according to every social principle in the world, Jesus shouldn't have had anything to do with her. He reaches across every barrier that the world puts between them in order to meet her greatest need. And by doing so, Jesus Christ shows us that He changes the way we think about God because He gives us a God who has come to meet our needs. He shows us that this is a God who comes to meet our needs. He's not a God who is waiting on us to come to Him to measure up. 
No, he comes and he says, you need the living water. And if you ask for it, I will give it to you. Meaning that I will get you to God. That's what Jesus is saying. And in fact, he goes on to say that the time is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth because the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Then he says that God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. How can Jesus say something like that? How can He make such a bold, such a radical claim for that day and really for today? Well, that's exactly what the woman at the well wanted to know because she says, well, I know that the Messiah is coming and when He comes, He's going to tell us all things. But Jesus looked at her and He said, I who speak to you am He. Jesus Christ can say all these things and He can make all these incredible claims because through the Gospel, He changes the way we think about God by telling us that He is the Messiah. He is the Lord Himself, the Lord in the flesh. But you see, this isn't the only change that He has come to make through the Gospel. Because second, He also changes the way we think about sin. He changes the way we think about sin, but now how does He do that? Well, I think that we can all look at this Samaritan woman. We can all look at her and the circumstances surrounding her life, and we can all say, now that's sin, right? I mean, can't we all look at her and what she's into in her life and say, yeah, now, now that is sin. If you want to see what sin looks like, look no further than how this woman is living. I mean, if we think about it for a moment, isn't this really the traditional understanding of sin? She's a lawbreaker. She's an outsider who's had five husbands. You know, maybe she's an adulteress, probably so. And on top of all that, she's living with a man who isn't her husband. I mean, isn't that the definition of sin in our culture? Living in sin in our culture? Isn't this it? Well, it is. Why? Because we define sin as breaking God's laws. We think sin is merely breaking God's laws. Now, don't get me wrong. Breaking God's laws is sin. It is a sin to break God's laws. But Jesus Christ, when he comes on the scene, he makes it very clear that sin is about far more than what we do or what we don't do. He wants us to know that sin is something that runs deep in the pit of every human heart. Dr. Timothy Keller, who's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, he defines sin like this. He says that sin is putting yourself in the place of God, putting yourself in the place of being your own Savior, your own God, and your own Master. Now those of you who know the Ten Commandments say, ah, I see that. That is breaking the first commandment, right? No other gods before yourself. So that is breaking the first of the Ten Commandments. But you see, the problem is we don't always realize when we do this. Sin is so subtle that we don't always see how it's coming to the surface in our lives. Because you see, another way of looking at sin is this. Sin is not just the bad things that we do. And sin is not just the good things that we fail to do in our lives. No, sin is when we take the good things in our life, when we take any good thing, and we turn it into an ultimate thing. Sin is when anything in your life becomes more important to you than God. And sin is centering your whole life, your happiness, 
your purpose, your reason for existence, your everything around something other than God. And you see, there are all kinds of ways that we do this every day in our lives. We look at our jobs and our paychecks and we say, you know, this is really what defines me. Maybe we won't say that. Maybe we don't have the guts to admit that on the surface. But deep down in our hearts, that's really what we believe. We think that I'm I'm successful at work and I make good money. You know, never mind that sometimes I have to overwork for it. It's okay because this is really what gives me value in my life. Now, maybe that's not you at all. Maybe this works the other way in your life. Maybe you're somebody who's not having much success at work these days. Maybe your paycheck isn't as big as you think that it should be. Or maybe you don't have work or a paycheck at all right now. And so you're thinking that if I just had that, you know, if I just had a job, or if I just had a different job, or if I just got paid a little more, then life would be better. Then I could really feel like I'm somebody. Now, maybe this morning, the center of your life is not your job. But perhaps it's something else, like your family. You see, many of us parents, we think that as long as our kids are good, and as long as they behave and we raise our kids in the right way, then that's really all that matters in life. You know, there are other things that are important, but really, if you just take care of your kids, if they grow up and they're good kids and they're happy... Well, then that's what really life is all about, right? You know, as long as our kids get good grades and as long as they get into good schools and are happy, then we can be happy because ultimately we can know that we're successful parents. It's amazing how many of us parents, our parenting really has nothing to do with our kids, but it has everything to do with our image of how everybody else perceives us. And that leads us to another thing that we tend to revolve around in our life, maybe The center of our life is our reputation. You know, people knowing who we are and that we're good at something, that we can accomplish what we need to get done. Or maybe it's not that at all. Maybe it's a relationship that we have with somebody. You know, or maybe it's a lack of a relationship. And we're thinking to ourselves, you know, if I just had a relationship, if I just had a better husband or a better wife or a better boyfriend or a better girlfriend, if I just had one of those at all, then I could be happy. And everything would be okay in my life. You see, every person and everything, every created thing has to center around something. You know, even our own solar system shows us this, if you don't believe me. You know, think about our solar system for a moment. All the planets in our solar system, all of them orbit around one thing, don't they? Yeah, what is it? Well, it's the sun. All the planets in the solar system orbit around the sun, and because they all have chosen it, or have had it chosen for them, we should say, they all live in harmony, don't they? They're all out there, they're all going around the sun, and there's no problem. But picture for a moment what it would be like if just one of those planets, Mercury, for example, decided that it didn't want to orbit around the sun any longer, and that it wanted to have an orbit all its own. And it wanted to go out and do its own thing. What would happen? Well, Mercury wouldn't get very far before it bumped into another planet. And of course, that planet would bump into another planet, knocking it off its orbit. And it would go out and bump into another one and so on and so forth. And so what do you have? 
You've got cosmic chaos. It would be a huge problem. The solar system would cease to exist as we know it. Now imagine for a moment that not just one of those planets did that, but imagine all the planets in the solar system said, you know, we've had enough of this. We're not going to orbit around the sun any longer. We're going to have our own orbit, and we're going to go our own way. You know, it doesn't take a very big stretch of the imagination to think about what that would be like, because though it's on a much, much smaller scale, that is exactly what has happened in our universe when sin entered in the picture. You see, Adam, the first man that God created, when God created human beings, He created human beings to orbit around Him. God created every human being to have their center in Him, the Lord Himself. But because Adam, the first man, decided that he wanted to be his own God, because he sinned against God in trying to center his own life around himself, he became sinful and he became corrupt, and he's passed that nature on to every one of us. And when you look at the world and you see all the problems and all the things that are messed up and all the things that do not work like they're supposed to, this is the reason why. Nothing works like it's supposed to because we've all decided to go our own way. We've all decided to center our lives around ourselves, our desires, and what we want. And so we're all going through life centered on all kinds of things other than God. And so our lives are crashing into others, and it's making this world a terrible place to live in. You see, this is the problem that Jesus Christ is trying to get Nicodemus, and he's trying to get the Samaritan woman and us to see. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, he knew that there was something missing in his heart. He knew that there was something missing deep down, but he had no clue what it was. But in saying, you must be born again, Jesus Christ is saying to Nicodemus and to us, you need a new life that is centered around God and His work, not, your, not you and not your works. Jesus says this is what's missing from your life. He says this is what you are thirsting for and what you're chasing after. It's the thirst of the soul. And you see, this would have been an incredibly effective metaphor in Jesus' day and in this time because the climate was so hot and it was so dry that if you didn't have water, it was very much a matter of life and death. Without it, you would die of thirst. And Jesus is trying to get us to see that all the things we're chasing after in this life, all those things that we're craving is really a thirst for God's presence and His power and His truth in our hearts. And so Jesus is trying to show the Samaritan woman at the well that this is what she's missing from her life, that she too has a thirst. But it's one that she's been trying to fill with men. But it's not working for her. Why? Because there's a barrier that is keeping her and that's keeping us from the thing that we need, the thing that we were created for and the thing that we're thirsting after. And it is a relationship with the Lord Himself, the Lord who created us. But you see, what makes all this so tragic as we think about it is that this great barrier that exists between us and God is one that we have put up ourselves in our sin. This barrier between us and God is not God's fault. 
And it's not a barrier that cuts down the middle between good and bad. Because that's, if that was the case, there would only be one who is good. And that's what Jesus is trying to show us. You see, the barrier is not between the good and the bad. This way, at least. It works this way. And Jesus Christ is the only one on this side of the fence. That's what he's trying to get us to see. And you see, though this barrier exists between us and him, though this barrier exists between us and God, the one that we desperately need, it is a barrier that is too great for us to overcome, even though we spend our lives doing all kinds of things, trying to be moral people, trying to be the best we can to overcome this great barrier. It is far too great to us for us to overcome because we're all trying to fill up our lives with other stuff. We're all trying to quench our thirst. But whatever it is, it never lasts because we think that through them we can somehow avoid sin, don't we? Isn't that why we do the things we do? We think that if we're just good enough and if we avoid sin, then certainly God has to accept us because we're living the right way and we're good people. But, you, but if you see sin, if your definition of sin is merely doing what is right and not doing what is wrong, that will never ever fix the problem in your life. In fact, it will only make it worse because what that will cause you to do is to separate yourselves from others. You see, on one hand, if you feel like that you're living up to standards in your own life, if you feel like you're doing good, then you can't help but to look down on people who aren't living up like you are and who aren't good like you. But you see, on the other hand, if you're not living up to standards in your life, then you're always fearful. You're always afraid of other people and what they might think of you. So you exhaust yourself, always trying to do better, always trying to measure up to what you know that you should be, but that you aren't and that you can't be. But you see, through the gospel, Jesus Christ changes the way we think about sin by showing us that sin is more than outward behavior. It's an inner condition of the heart from which we need a radical salvation. And fortunately for us, the third thing we see here in this passage is that through the gospel, Jesus Christ has not only come to change the way we think about God and the way we think about sin, but he has come to change the way we think about salvation. And he does that in two ways. And the first way Jesus does this is that he changes the way we think about salvation through his thirst. Do you realize... Do you realize that if the only reason that this woman at the well ever found the living water was because Jesus was thirsty? That's the only reason she had this interaction with Jesus. You see, if Jesus Christ hadn't have been thirsty, he never would have gone to this well. And she'd still be trying to, to quench her soul's thirst through sexual relationships with men. But now, why was Jesus Christ thirsty? Why did he go to this well in the first place? was because he was a human being. You see, though Jesus Christ is God, who's existed from all eternity, he is also God who became man that grew weak and who needed refreshing just like we do. And you see, the only reason that this Samaritan woman ever found the living water was because Jesus Christ said, I thirst. Jesus said, I thirst. But you see, if you read the rest of John's gospel, if you don't stop here and you read all the way through this book, you know that this is not the only time in Jesus' life when he says, I thirst. 
When Jesus Christ was hung on the cross by both Jews and Gentiles, by both religious and irreligious people, we're told in this gospel that he became weary and he again looked down upon those who had crucified him and he said, I thirst. But you see, this was far more than just a physical thirst that Jesus experienced. No, on the cross, Jesus experienced the ultimate thirst. What it was, was he lost his center. He lost the very thing that he was living for. And it was a relationship he had with his Father in heaven. Jesus suffered our punishment. And he paid the debt that we owe God for our sin. And for Jesus Christ to be cut off from God. And to experience the hell that we deserve. Because of our sin and making things other than God central to our lives. Jesus experienced the ultimate barrier and He experienced the ultimate thirst of the soul so that He could be the source of living water for you and I. You see, that's why Jesus Christ had to become a man, what we call the incarnation. It was to experience the ultimate thirst of the soul for us so that we could be filled with the living water of God's love and His acceptance that we call the gospel. That's what the good news is, that in Jesus Christ, we now have God's love and His eternal acceptance, not for what we do, but for what Jesus has done in our place. But you see, it's not only through this, it's not only through Jesus' thirst that He changes our view of salvation. Now, this passage also shows us that there's something else that we need besides the living water, in addition to the living water, in order for us to be saved. Now what is it? Well, if you look back at what Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, He tells her very clearly that she needs living water. But if you look back at what He says to Nicodemus, He tells Nicodemus that he needs something else. And what was that? He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Now we said earlier that this is another metaphor for spiritual life. Being born again means that you come into spiritual life. But you see, this metaphor gets across something that the other one, the living water metaphor, doesn't get. And that is this. You cannot earn or you cannot contribute anything to being born, can you? How many of you contributed something to your own birth? You know, was it hard work for you to be born? Well, it wasn't hard work for you. But it certainly was hard work for someone else. You see, our salvation works the same way. Though we don't work to be saved by Jesus Christ, though we don't work to be born, just as we don't work to be born into this life, we also don't work to be born into God's kingdom. But Jesus does, and He has on our behalf. You see, Jesus Christ, what this shows us is that the second way that Jesus changes the way we think about salvation is that Jesus has saved us through His death. That's the second way this shows us how Jesus changes the way we think about salvation because it's not through our life that we're saved and how we lived, but it's actually through Jesus' death. You see, Jesus not only had to become a man, but He had to die, which is the opposite of being born. Why? It's because Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. But the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus the Lord. You see, salvation is free for you if you will accept it by faith. But it wasn't free for Jesus. 
No, it cost him everything to forgive our sins in order to make us right with God. And the only way to get eternal life is not only through his death, but also through his resurrection. He had to be raised to life because it's a dead Savior. If you really think about it, a dead Savior is not good for anybody, is he? No, he's not. The only person that can save us is a king who not only experienced death on our behalf, but who has been raised to life and who lives and who reigns in righteousness at the right hand of God. And our Savior Jesus Christ has done that. He's done exactly that. You see, not only did he have to die, but God had to raise him from the dead so that when he returns again in glory, he can raise us to life too. Otherwise, we have no hope in this life, just as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. You see, it's because of our sin. It's because of our self-centeredness. The bad news is that everything in this world is falling apart and everything is dying. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the water of life that has the power to revive dead things. And it has the power to bring restoration to all things. And the good news is it can bring renewal to your life if you will accept it by faith. Will you take the water of life today that Jesus offers? Have you put your faith solely in Him and in His works on your behalf? And have you been, with his, have you been filled with His Spirit or are you trying to fill your soul with some counterfeit water that's not filling you and it's only going to lead to death? You see, this is the medicine you need. This is what you need to fill your heart and to fill your desires. And if you will take it, Jesus says it will change your life. How? Well, if you read through the rest of John's Gospel, you can see how specifically it changed both the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus. You see, chapter 4 goes on to tell us that after meeting Jesus Christ, the Samaritan woman goes off and she tells all her friends about this living water that she's found. Why does she do that? It's because Jesus didn't just say, this water I give you will fill you up. No, he says in verse 14, it will become a spring inside of you. It will become a spring that wells up into eternal life. And so this means not only will the gospel fill your heart, but it is so great that you cannot help, you cannot keep it from spilling out into the lives of others if you truly understand what it is and what you have. And because the gospel changed this woman like that, we're told, that it indeed did go out and overflow into the lives of others, causing many Samaritans from town to town to believe in him because of this woman's testimony, verse 39 says. And then if you read on to verse 41, it says that even more, many more, came to believe in Jesus. The woman at the well shows us that if you really understand what you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will overflow with such joy and such grace that you can't help but to have it overflow into the lives of others. But now what kind of change? We see that that's the kind of change that this brought in the Samaritan's woman's life. But what kind of change did it bring in Nicodemus's life? Well, to see the change that the gospel makes in Nicodemus's life, you have to go all the way to chapter 19 in John's gospel, almost to the end of the book. Because what you find there. Is, what, is you see Nicodemus once again coming to Jesus Christ by night. And why is he doing it this time? 
Well, it's because this is after Jesus has been crucified. And Nicodemus is coming on the scene to help Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus' body. And this was at a time when it was very, very dangerous to do something like this. And so what does this show us? Well, it shows us that the new birth changes us so that we are even willing to take great risks, maybe even to the point of death, to serve Jesus. Are you willing to take this kind of risk today? Are you willing to die to yourself, to go somewhere that maybe you wouldn't normally go, to maybe serve somebody that you wouldn't normally serve, somebody you don't even like even, for Jesus' sake? You see, the only way you're ever going to be able to do this is to understand that even while we were Jesus' enemies, He came to offer us living water and new life, not at the risk of experiencing the ultimate thirst and dying, but by actually suffering them both in our place. And you see, it's only by seeing that and to the extent that it moves you inside and it becomes the thing that you live for, that you center your life around, the thing that actually nourishes your soul day in and day out, that is the only thing that will lead to the kind of change that we long to see both here and around the world. So let's pray this morning that the Lord will do that, shall we? That through the gospel working in us, we will see changed hearts and changed lives and changed community in Kennesaw and in Cartersville and indeed throughout the whole world for the glory of Jesus' name. Let's pray.